We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome, everyone. We're excited to discuss an important topic related to the science of reading. We hope this presentation will help you as educators support beginning readers as they build background knowledge and vocabulary skills. I am Amanda Alexander, the Chief Academic Officer here at Scholastic. I began my career as an early childhood educator, a kindergarten teacher, and have had the privilege of serving in both the District of Columbia Public Schools and the New York City Public School System as a site-based administrator and a senior district officer. I'm joined today by our guest panelists and star, Dr. Elfrida Hebert, also known as Freddie. She's a renowned reading researcher and author of Scholastic Word. Freddie is a lifelong literacy educator and has scanned and studied 10,000 children's texts to discover the 2,500 morphological word families students will encounter 90% of the time. Dr. Hebert is the president and CEO of textproject.org and a research associate at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She is a fellow of the American Research Association and was awarded a William S. Gray Citation of Merit by the International Reading Association for outstanding contributions to the field of reading. I'm also joined today by my dear colleague, Jessica Woolman. Jessica is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Curriculum at Scholastic Education Solutions. She too began her career as an early childhood teacher, serving also um, as pre-K and primary teacher in New York City, public and private schools. Jessica has devoted her career to transforming education through print and digital resources of the highest quality. As a part of the body of the science of reading research, Go and Tummer coined the phrase, the simple view of reading, to describe the role of decoding in the reading process. Reading comprehension is the product of decoding and language comprehension. Decoding alone is only one piece of the reading process. Without comprehension, a student is not fully reading. This rope helps further illustrate the simple view of reading and is, commonly, is a commonly used image uh, when discussing the complexity of learning to read. As Scarborough describes, the image illustrates the major strands that are woven together during the course of becoming a skilled reader. It's important to note how the strands interact, that they are not independent of one another, and how they become more tightly woven. At Scholastic, we have taken a unique approach, starting with the knowledge of how the brain makes connections and how making connections early on can set the foundation for all future learning. This is why Scholastic is so very thrilled to continue partnering with Dr. Hebert, whether it is with her authorship of Scholastic Word, digital programming, or sponsoring events like this one today. 
Dr. Hebert is a true thought leader in the science of reading, and as we'll hear today, a passionate advocate for ensuring students grasp the word and word knowledge they need to be successful in literacy and life. And with that, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Freddie Hebert at this time. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander. So we're talking about the role of knowledge in beginning reading today and with struggling readers. And one thing we want to remember is that young children come to us in school being very, very curious. They're curious about many, many things. And for some kids, they've learned that books are a major source of knowledge and information. Keep remembering that when you can't go and do certain things, you know, like go on to a pirate ship, you can learn about things or you can't go and really pet a koala. You can learn about things in the context of text. Being read to involves kids learning an enormous amount of vocabulary and also learning about the special role that books have in our culture. So books are where we have over centuries stored knowledge and experiences. And kids are learning through the process of book reading that these things called books give us incredible information and also are a source of real intimacy and enjoyment. So what happens when kids haven't had some of those experiences? How do we bring them to literacy and that underlying understanding of the critical role of books? Often, when we start out, um, Dr. Alexander showed the simple model of reading. You know, the model may be simple, but the ideas aren't simple. So the whole idea of an alphabet is the most complex idea kids are going to have ever confronted. On its own, a letter really doesn't have any meaning. Well, other than the word I or maybe a. Uh. But to practice these letters, practice the sounds associated with the letters, and to learn words, and then to practice with pretty tedious text, it really helps to know something about the role of text and books. So what I'm going to suggest today is that there are a couple of different aspects of knowledge that we need to understand with young children. The most fundamental aspect is that books are incredible. They can give you information. We can't experience everything in the world, but books can give us that knowledge. Hey, reading, as you saw with the simple view, involves knowledge. Language comprehension is fundamental to being able to comprehend. And much of the knowledge that we use in our comprehension 
is actually built through books. And finally, although I'm sure there are lots of other aspects of knowledge, the fact that letters and words connect with sounds and known words is another really fundamental aspect of knowledge. And that's the one I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about the role of books in developing that knowledge. Now, when we look at research on knowledge in reading acquisition, I want to emphasize that if there's been one finding from research over the past decade, it has been the instantiation, the anchoring, the validation of the first idea, that knowledge is both a cause and a consequence. Actually, in the report of the Reaping the Rewards of the um, Reading for Understanding Initiative, they also use the word covariate, which means that knowledge is reciprocal. And an important part of this knowledge that we don't want to forget is that how familiar a word is to you strongly predicts your ability to recognize it. That makes a lot of sense, right? If I decode a word like yak, Y-A-K, and I don't know what that is, I don't really know if I've decoded it appropriately. So these ideas about knowledge are fundamental to our attending to this really critical initial stage for kids. And what I want to talk about is how we learn about the linguistic system and how texts play into that. Now, in a short presentation like this, there's a lot that can be misunderstood. I'm going to talk a little bit about decodable text, but I want to underscore that I am not asking any questions about the fact that kids need to progress on the alphabetic journey. Okay, English has 44 phonemes, 26 graphemes, and the relationships are the most inconsistent around vowels. But we have to remember that letters and sounds may not be consistent. English is called a quasi-regular orthography, and orthography has to do with our spelling system. But English is always alphabetic. Okay? We don't bring in strange symbols. I mean, now we do with texting, but when we're teaching kids to read, we use these same 26 graphemes. And there's substantial validation that you have to have some guidance. It helps to have guidance in those patterns. There are three national reports. I was actually part of the first one here. And the reports have consistently stated guidance in the consistent common patterns of written English are critical. But at the same time, we need to remember that because we have different sources of English, unlike some other languages that have a single linguistic source, it's been established that relative to other European languages, so this was a study early on in the European Union, that students learning to read in English were about twice as slow as students in languages with a very evident orthography. And these effects were due to both 
the orthographic depth, and that means this issue of how consistent the patterns are. So if you think of a, um, the sounds associated with the letter A, you know, we can have sat, but we can also have um, said, and we can have late, and we can have load as an LOAD. So the issue is that complexity means that this journey isn't just an automatic or a quick one for kids. And I think this notion that knowing why I'm doing it, and one of the things about very young children, sometimes they'll act confused, but they might not tell you what their confusion is about. But knowing that there's a purpose to this, these books give us really great information. Now, one of the things that has become very much part of discussions of pedagogy, of practice regarding the science of reading, has to do with decodable text. The most comprehensive review is one by Cheatham and Allure, and they've actually described two studies where there was an early effect for decodable text, but that effect waned over time. Okay, so initially it really, really helped. You were better at decoding and so on. But what these authors concluded, and that's on the right-hand side of the slide, that decodability shouldn't be looked as a text type, but as a feature. So some texts are more decodable than other texts. Now, we currently have a view of decodability, and I want to actually go into one of these studies. So the Jewell and Roper Schneider study, and also the one by Joe Jenkins in um, 20, uh, 2004, there are the studies that show the most definitive role of decodable text. But what I want to point out to you is that the model, so these are the studies, the, excuse me, the books that were used in Jewell's study that was published in Reading Research Quarterly. And this is one of, and there are many, many texts. I, I see almost a program, it seems to me, is coming out a day that claims to be decodable. What I'm going to share with you is that the model of what is decodable in these texts differs a lot from the research that we often cite, which is the Jenkins study and the Jill and Roper Schneider. In our current decodable text, the view is that if patterns have been taught in a lesson, then kids should be able to decode them in a text. Now, these two texts look pretty similar, right? They're both about kids opening a box and something inside the box. But in actual fact, when we look beyond the individual page, I'm going to show you that these texts are very different. So the texts on which we have definitive data and those in which we have aspirational or we hope it works data are quite different in character. So when we look at these texts, what we see is that the model decodability, that idea that once taught, then learned. Now, I have lots of questions about that model because for some kids, 
learning a pattern takes a really long time if you haven't begun your journey before these lessons that you're getting. Okay, so what you're seeing here, the differences between the text we had and the text we have is if you believe kids should be able to transfer that knowledge to almost any word, you just put in a lot more words. So what you're seeing here is that in our current decodables, you have a lot of single appearing words. And one of the things that's different, I have a particular interest in the teaching of long vowel rhymes. You know, a rhyme is the ending of a word like A-T-E. I'm really interested in long vowels. I think we spent so much time on short vowels. And then it turns out it's the long vowel where you actually need to have a sense of variability, right? So Laura Stacy at the Florida um, Reading Center talks about a set for variability. You have to be aware that these letter sound correspondences are going to do some different things, especially with vowels. But what you're seeing here is in that the books that Connie Jewell used, there were 17 long vowel patterns in the um, primer, which was about 6,200 words. Both of these sets of texts have the same number of words. And what you see today is that there are a lot more patterns. So the assumption is you can just transfer. And what I'm going to suggest is at this point, we don't have the evidence that the kids who need these books can actually make that transfer that quickly with that few exemplars. That's a lot of words you only see a single time. And one of the things we know about learning language is that a modicum of repetition helps. And in fact, Seidenberg, who is often cited as one of the people who really started off the science of reading movement, has this wonderful quote. Now, do you know that in his book, he never uses the term decodable text? That term isn't used. But what he says, and I'm actually going to read this because I think it's really, really critical. Readers become orthographic experts by absorbing a lot of data, which is one reason why the sheer amount and variety of text that students read is important. And finally, we don't study orthographic patterns in order to be able to read. We gain orthographic expertise by reading. And one of the things I'm going to really emphasize here today is that there are things we know about the science of reading, but there are some things we haven't studied with the same depth. And one of those is volume. How much of this data do you actually need to see? And is there a lot of one trial learning? Now, David Scher has talked about self-teaching, but there's a foundation that you need before you begin to make some of this transfer. And for very young children, especially ones who are trying to figure out this whole task of reading, that can be a pretty big jump. Now, one person who has actually looked at volume is Linnea Erie. And you'll remember that Linnea was the architect of the National Reading Panel's alphabetic section. What Linnea did is compared students who 
were in a tutoring intervention, so there is a difference here between the tutoring and small group, and then there was business as usual, which was small group in the classroom. But what she did is she took a group of books, about 300 books, and she ordered them according to a curriculum. And it's the curriculum that we typically follow, right? Short vowels, long vowels, um, and complex vowels. But what she found is that the students, it wasn't just the small group, she concluded, that some kids had were getting tutoring and some were in small groups. The um, effect sizes here are about twice the size of the typical effect sizes in reading um, um, tier one, tier two, tier three intervention studies. What Linnea concludes is that the tutored students read substantially more books than the small group students. Like, you know, about almost five to six times as much. So what I'm going to suggest today is can we think of increasing the volume of text that we're giving students? And can we do some of that both by topic and letter sound patterns? Okay, so I'm going to suggest what we think about as a resorting process, resorting. So one of the things I've done is I thought the word cats, I'm not a big cat person, but it's there are a lot of books about cats at beginning reading. And so I found, and I found there are many more than this, but I took all the cat books that I could find. And then what I began seeing, see what I'm gonna suggest here is that when you do things topically, you can focus with kids who haven't had a lot of experience with text on understanding that you can learn some really cool things from text. Okay, so here are some of the texts. And what I'm actually, this isn't the slide that I put in, so it's changed, but um, trust me that they're not all repetitive texts. Okay, um, there are a variety of texts with words that are repeated. And what we wanna see, we wanna let kids know after they've read a book or two, is we want to start collecting the information they've gotten. So what I'm suggesting is that with young learners, it's putting text together in some sets and then helping kids see the ideas that they're gaining from these texts. Additionally, we want them to see what they're learning in terms of patterns from these texts. And I'm strongly suggesting that it's children who write on post-it notes and put them on boards because writing is one of the most critical dimensions that we have in terms of testing out your hypothesis about letter sound correspondences. So we may talk about the simple view of reading but there's a lot of spelling and writing underneath that. Now, I also want to emphasize here that when I pick these books, so if you go back here and see the books that I've picked, I've picked books where 
cats are doing some things that make sense, that kids likely know about. Like they have naps, they sleep, and they sit on laps. One, all of these features have been sh shown to influence how quickly kids learn words and how quickly kids retain words. So what you're seeing here in the words in green is when we see words like fad, yam, and yak and have no idea what those are, we can pronounce those words sometimes, and that's really the case with kids who speak Spanish as their native language. They're actually pretty good at word calling. But if we don't know what the word is, it's highly unlikely that we'll retain it. So when I'm looking for these families of words, and this is what Linnea Erie did in that study where she resorted, resorted text, was we're looking for words that are repeated and that are within kids' age of acquisition. And I just realized I didn't describe for you what age of acquisition meant. Age of acquisition has to do with whether that word is heard in your oral environment and maybe even if you say it. So this is the language comprehension dimension that Dr. Alexander was showing. So what you're seeing in lots of decodable texts, we see words with high age of acquisition. You know, age of acquisition of about five is what you would expect with younger kids in kindergarten or in first grade, maybe six. But you're also seeing that some of these words don't happen a lot. And that brings us back to Seidenberg's point, right? If you have to see the data and you have to see it a lot. You have to see a lot of data. Now, it turns out concreteness matters. And we have a word here like bad. That's not terribly concrete, but it happens to be one that has a very low age of acquisition. And I'm always looking for words that have lots of interesting exemplars. So, for example, a word like yak has no mates, you know, because words that rhyme like back and sack have a CK. Okay, but a word like nap with map and lap is a really pretty good word to use. Okay, so I'm suggesting that even if the words don't appear as much as you'd like in text, having students write the words you know, on magnetic boards, on um, on stick, uh, sticky notes and so on um, with felt pens, that can be a way in which you get greater exposure. Okay? So my first point has been, we want to get books that help build knowledge from the get-go. And we can do that with ideas that resonate to kids just because they resonate to kids doesn't mean they're boring you know cats can do some very mischievous things and what we want to do is to help kids see the patterns in those words and also read across text because one of the findings that's coming out from research is it's not just seeing a word in a single context which is one of the problems with um repeated texts where you have the line that just goes the same line over and over, like um, this is the house that Jack built. 
you want to see a word like nap or lap in a couple different situations. Now, staying with this idea of topics, we can do an enormous amount with young children through read-alouds. And there are some absolutely stellar books, like They All Saw a Cat, which I love this book because it shows the cat from the perspective of different um, entities, like, you know, the cat from the perspective of a little boy, it's barely touching a sneaker, and the cat from the perspective of a mouse. Looks pretty big from the perspective of mouse. So we want to add read-alouds on the topic. I'm not saying we deal with cats for a whole semester. Please don't think that. I am saying that for a couple days or a period of a week, maybe a tad bit longer, we stay with topics that help students develop background knowledge and also have some opportunity to see the words that they're learning. I think that some of these series books like Pete the Cat are just absolutely fantastic. And so I made sure to include some of those. And Splat the Cat has some interesting adventures as well. This is a way for kids who haven't had lots of exposure to books to really invite them into increased understanding about topics. And what I'm saying here is always, 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 even before the kids can read some of these words on their own in kindergarten, we want to be documenting what we've learned. You know, we want kids to see, and we want these charts to be things that we can revisit. Look at all the things we've learned and the things we could, we've read about and the things and the words that we can read. And here you actually see some more complex forms, making a map with some of the more complex forms in some of these words, because kids, as Dr. Alexander said, have a wide range of capability with regard to literacy when they come into your classrooms. So to conclude, what I've su suggested today is that as we attend to the arduous task of learning to read the words on our own, we have to remember it's all a knowledge process. It's all about knowledge. The words are about knowledge. It's knowing that I'm learning these words so that I can read books and gain even more knowledge. For kids who haven't had a lot of experience with being read to, this opportunity to learn about the purpose of books and then to begin acquiring these bodies of knowledge is going to make an enormous difference. What we're learning more and more, as in the Reading for Understanding initiative, is that for a lot of students, it's comprehension. It's because they haven't read very much, their automaticity isn't great, and they don't have the background knowledge and they don't know how to learn from text. And what I'm saying is, from the get-go, 
our process is about learning with text, even when the texts are very simple ones. And I want to remind you that we have lots of free materials. Everything at Text Project is uh, open access for your use in classrooms. Right now, we're doing a major rehaul, and some of the sites might, some of the particular products might be a little um, cranky when you're um, downloading them, but give us a little time. So, thank you so much. I want to just say thank you for what you're doing. I know this hasn't been the easiest period in our history as educators, and I want to just say thank you very much for being here today with me. Really appreciate it. Joelle. Thank you so much. That was a really incredible presentation. Um, I, I learned a lot in that just short time. It went so fast. Um, there's been a lot of great questions that have come in already. And I just want to give people a couple extra minutes if they want to add anything else into the question box uh, to do so now. And in the meantime, I did want to mention that as the sponsor of today's session, we at Scholastic, we don't own the copyright to those amazing titles shared in Dr. Hebert's slide, but what we have co-created together is a very relevant and research-based uh, digital resource that I just want to give you a quick sneak peek of um, as the questions come in. And it is a truly wonderful vocabulary program for grades K to five, and it is called Scholastic Word. So I'm just going to briefly uh, show you a little bit about that. So here at um, Scholastic Education, we have a number of literacy solutions in our digital suite that provide students with research-based instruction and engaging game-based practice, as you can see. Um, and we also offer educators robust data from these programs to inform and differentiate their instruction. But Scholastic Word is absolutely one of our keystone digital programs because it was designed to help close the vocabulary gap. And as you saw in today's presentation, one word can lead to a whole, all these new concepts and ideas for a child. And this effect is the instructional goal behind Scholastic Word to ensure that students fully grasp core vocabulary words, deepen their comprehension of the text they read and their ability to make meaningful connections. And we do so in Word with are 10 cross-curricular themes because beyond vocabulary, Word really is a knowledge program and there's nothing else like it. It's, you know, students are passing through these 10 themes per grade level independently. And as Dr. Hebert covered, they need this deep background knowledge to be able to think creatively and critically about these subjects. So if you're interested in learning more about Scholastic Word, for your students um, at your school, I really invite you to visit scholastic.com word and you can request a free demo there or learn all about it, um, including there's lots of resources from Dr. Hebert and uh, her research there as well. So let's get to the questions. I am going to open up the box here. And, and while you're doing we're... that, Joelle, I'd like to yeah. say that the text that I showed for the kids on my cat, on the cat books, Except yep. I think for one of them, this word program has this incredible teacher's resource guide with suggestions yep. of connected text. The text came from that guide. 
Oh, beautiful. Okay, yeah, great. So I just I wasn't I, I sure. I was watching. <laughs> I personally would um, think that just that guidance itself, I, you know, obviously everything is, is wonderful and it's research-based and um, so on, but it has just great ideas for how to make connections to um, read by myself and for read-alouds. That is such a good point. Okay, well, that is really good to know. I did not realize that. So thank you. Um, I learned another thing. So here's the first question. Uh, someone asked, how, how can we support background knowledge in our beginning readers who are also multilingual learners? That's a really important question. Remember, if you're learning a second language, you actually know some things about language. So Noli Lasso at Harvard has, has shown that you can, you're, you're actually more tuned in to sounds and the nature of language when you are learning a second language. And just because you're learning a second language doesn't mean you don't know a lot in your own language, right? So I'm just saying that if you start with concepts that are familiar, I'm not saying boring, I'm saying familiar, interesting concepts, you can build on, on what kids know in their native languages, even if you don't know that language. I mean, kids will tell you, little ones will tell you, um, you know, what, what a word is in their language. And they'll also work with you on the pronunciation if you're if you're so inclined. <laughs> you know, they're very good at making sure you get the pronunciation of their language right. Great. Okay, this is a good one. I love what you're saying, but I'm not sure where to start as a kindergarten teacher. Do you have any small changes you could recommend that I can start making to support gains in my students' vocabulary? Well, I think these ideas of making idea maps, um, sometimes we call them semantic maps, um, mind maps. I think showing kids how things connect and that they're learning things is a really great small change. Okay? And, and keeping a record of those. I also think kids, um, you know, coming, working on, Spelling a word and putting that word on a chart gives them some sense of ownership. I think labeling things, you know, with words in a classroom is a small change that helps kids see what what things are. You know, in, in the classroom that I, one of the classrooms I did my dissertation and I was at the University of Wisconsin and, you know, they had the radiator labeled which was a pretty important um, aspect that winter. It was very, very cold. But labeling things in the environment, I think, can be really good. So kids start making associations. Asking kids to pick words that they want to know and collecting some really special words for them. You know, I, my very first published study was getting uh, daycare kids to, to give words they wanted to learn. Mm. And not a single kid ever picked the word the, <laughs> but they picked a lot of words like, you know, magic markers, or they picked, you know, one kid picked the term uh, 
the word damn dissertation because it turned out her her parent was working on a dissertation. Excuse the language, but you know, so um, kids can pick th some things that they want to learn. That can be a really important part point too. So I've actually identified a couple different small changes, but I think getting kids to see visual visual uh, representations of things they know about is what I think is really really important. Okay, that's awesome. And that came in a couple. That was a couple times tips expansion and and that kind of piece so this other one this is um even those beginning readers but this question is um would can you use lower level text to build you know let's say a fourth graders background knowledge and vocabulary would you recommend that well i'd have to know something about what the fourth graders know and I, I do want to note that that's a topic that I've been working on. I have a paper in um, the reading teacher that just came out that's entitled When Students Score Below Basic on the National Assessment. What does it mean? And for those of you like Joel in Canada, the National Assessment is something we do here in the States. We're all fourth graders, excuse me, um, a sample of fourth graders are tested every other year and then conclusions are made about what kids know. So one of the things that we know is that except for the bottom five or six percent, the majority of the kids can read a lot of the words, but they do so very, very, very slowly. So, you know, I've worked on uh, that's what I've basically done my career is finding interesting kinds of text for kids to become automatic with that core vocabulary. That's one of the things that Word is. Um, we're about to post something at Text Project. It's not quite ready called Topic Reads, which are downloadable texts. We have FYI for kids. Those all reinforce those that core vocabulary. Okay, so it, it gives a higher than usual percentage to the core vocabulary. And by the core vocabulary, I mean those 2,500 families that appear the most. So I'd be reluctant to really use the real little guy text. I would find texts that are more, you know, like around second or third or fourth grade that have some accessibility. And as I said, what we have at Text Projects, that's what we do we have a higher than average percentage of the core vocabulary in the text. So rather than 90%, it'll be like 98 or 99%. Okay, that's great. And um, a few people were asking about um, just saying thank you and about the, re the research sources. And I know that they are in the slide deck, so we'll provide that um, in the follow-up um, post-webinar that you but can But they have might actually want the actual resource and I can make a list. I can give oh, a like list a bibliography. Of yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's that's very kind. So um, we'll just well one last question. I, I feel like you're going to like this question, uh, Dr. Hubert. If other countries have reformed their orthographies, do you see any signs that might happen in our future? Do I think that um, in the six or seven countries that use English as 
I know that in Canada, you also use French, but I'm thinking of Australia, New Zealand, and of course, I'm thinking of Great Britain, where it all started. Um, do I think, I mean, George Bernard Shaw certainly made made an effort, and it didn't happen. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, it's amazing that you can get, can get good at it. I mean, once you start studying um, English orthography, I go, I, I can't see how I ever learned this. <laughs> and, um, you know, during my pandemic project has been to learn my native language, which is German. And I'm very much still at the stages. I don't think I can ever learn this, but you begin to see patterns. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't ever think that in my lifetime we're going to change our orthography. Okay, well, we have time for one. There's just so many good ones. Um, I like this. What's the best time to have students create semantic maps after reading? Um, question mark. And how do you how do words targeted for explicit instruction work with the semantic maps? Well, I was showing two different kind of ways in which we record what we've what we've been learning. Right. So I've got those those charts, you know, where I'm if I can read this. And by the way, I didn't emphasize that. But that little statement at the top of those charts, if I can read cat, I can read such and such. For young children and their sense of agency. So this is a really important part of learning to read. I can actually do this. So if I can do this, then I can do that. Okay, so I was actually showing I, many of the words on on the, the keywords on that um, chart with the with the word families, or excuse me, the the rhymes were on the meaning chart, the semantic chart, but it doesn't necessarily have to overlap. So I mean, once if I know um, you know the word um, big. And I can even maybe know the word rig, right? So um, those words aren't going to come onto my semantic map this time. It might when we do transportation. So, you know, I think it's a really great idea to keep updating those charts. And the other big thing is keep reviewing the charts. Keep reminding kids of what they've learned. Oh, my goodness. You know what we just learned is that tigers are actually part of the cat family. We got to get our cat chart out, you know, and it might be on a whiteboard somewhere. And we got to add that. That's great. Um, so finally, there's just a couple people is they um, wondering if they can reach you. Are you, uh, how, how would you like uh, people if they have more questions to follow up, Freddie? We'll, we'll probably wrap up our Q&A now. I'm sorry, I couldn't get to everybody's questions, but um, how would you like people to reach well, you? Well, you know, with a name like Alfreda Hildegard Hebert, <laughs> I, I'm really easy to find on the internet. <laughs> um, but um, my um, email, I think, should be um, pretty accessible. It, it's hebert at textproject.org. Okay, great. Write me. I might be, I might take a little time. I can be pretty slow. I'm writing a new book. And um, so that, that I can be a little slow, but yeah, you're welcome to get in touch. Love to hear what you have to say. That's great. And I think we have your contact slide on the, the closing slide, contact information on the closing slide as well. So now that we've wrapped up q and I just want to say thank you again, Dr. Hebert. This was 
such a pleasure as always. And I'm going to hand it over to Jessica Woolman, our head of curriculum at Scholastic Education. Thanks so much, Joelle. And um, thank you all for your thoughtful questions and for joining us today. At Scholastic, we really understand that while each child's reading journey is unique, explicit literacy instruction does play an essential role in helping all students become skilled readers. Scholastic is very proud to provide a, a variety of instructional resources and solutions grounded in the science of reading to help provide your students with the support they need to flourish as lifelong readers and writers. So keep your eye out for more events from Scholastic on the science of reading. We also have a fantastic new science of reading resource to share with you all before we end our time together. Uh, please visit scholastic.com forward slash SOR. It's right there on the screen to learn more. I want to thank Dr. Freddie Hebert for her incredibly informative and inspiring presentation, as well as Amanda, Joelle, and all of our viewers for joining us today. We hope you have a great rest of your week and do hope to see you again in your science of reading journey. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.